Hey folks, this episode has quite a few mentions of disordered eating, so if that content is harmful for you, this would be a good one to skip. Happy listening. Hey, I'm Sam. And I'm Lizzie. And we're queer people who love movies. This is Subtextual. Hello, Sam. Uh, hello, Lizzie. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Spencer? I saw it sitting next to you. I did. <laughs> oh my God, no. that's, like, that's not how she talks, right? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm not well. I'm not well. Why do you have to do that accent? Oh no. Okay. Hey, Lizzie. How are you? What's up, Samuel? I'm chilling. Um, I'm excited to really get into this movie Spencer we saw Spencer together we did it was one of my birthday activities it was we went to New York for Lizzie's birthday and we went to see Spencer in the beautiful Angelica theater Mm -hmm. it was a really lovely space we left with deferring feelings on this movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) which doesn't often happen usually we agree yeah it's we're we're either 100% in agreement or we're completely on at odds (laughs) yes yes no style yeah would you um Would you tell us how you felt about this movie? I was gagged. I lived and died and lived again. This movie. But I'm I'm one of those Princess Diana people. Like, ever since I was a little girl, I was very much obsessed with her in a way that I think American girls were. Because she's like the last real fucking princess. And she was fucking beautiful and met this, like, tragic end. Yeah, did you have the Beanie Baby? I, I had the Beanie Baby, but not, like, the OG one. There was, like, a third... A third um, rendition that was, like, not as expensive. I had that one. I literally had it. That is so cute. You know, up until – this is embarrassing. Up until probably, like, six years ago maybe, that's a rough guess, I thought Princess Diana was the woman from The Parent Trap. I thought they were the same person. Oh, my gosh. Liam Neeson's uh, late ex Don't you reduce her to that. (laughs) Reduce her? Liam Neeson is a super hottie. What? Liam Neeson is a hunk. We never agree on Wait, men. Wait, what? Like, I can't believe what I'm hearing. <laughs> I don't think anyone's put those words me, like, together. a blank stare. I said what I said. I'm sorry. You, like, said the perfect combination of words that, like, shuts my brain off. Like, you know you know how in spy movies the they'll switch. say, like, chestnut? <laughs> the, it's like the reverse safe word. It's the unsafe word. Oh, no. I'm sorry. And I'm trying to think of Princess Diana, and now I'm thinking of Liam Neeson. Fuck. Princess Diana. So you were you, – what are your thoughts on Princess Diana? Like, indifferent? I feel the way about Princess Diana as – I feel about Robin Williams, where it's like, I didn't get on the train soon enough, and now it's gone pecan, and mm, it's too late. there's no catching up for me. I I think she was great. I think the work that she did uh, with gay people regarding the AIDS epidemic, I think it was inspirational. I, I, th- I think she's stunning, and I, I like her a lot, but I am not, you know, immersed in the lore in the ways that I know other people to be, so I came in... I guess more as a layman, comparatively to how people feel about Diana these days, I came into this movie knowing enough about her. But then, you know, upon our discussion later, I was like, do I know anything about this woman? Yeah. No, she was definitely like idolized in a way, especially or at least I'm speaking from an American perspective, obviously. But Mm -hmm. people were just head over heels in love with her. She was kind of painted to me as kind of like the Virgin Mary. Like, she was always very flawless. Yeah. The way that she's beloved is the way that, like, Selena Quintinia is beloved. Hell yeah. They would be saints. Like, they're modern-day saints. Yeah. And the fact that they died at the age that they did tragically die. Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers. Only further to, like, solidify their place in culture and history. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's how I view Diana in my head is that you know, I'm like, oh, she's other people's Selena, right? Mm-hmm. That's how much they see her. So, like, I know, for one, I'm very, very protective of the way that Selena is depicted in culture and in movies. And it must be very daunting for a production to take on such a beloved icon, uh, knowing that they're always going to get something wrong with somebody. Totally. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this is at least my first viewing of a film that took, like, a like a fiction take on her story. Like I know there's like an episode of The Crown. I haven't seen it, but there's a couple episodes where she's in that. But I can't really think of another movie that wasn't like some sort of docu-series on 
Princess Diana. Like, this was like a story about her, like told in a narrative way. Yeah, this is, I mean, I had to look it up because I was honestly kind of confused as to where this like boom in Diana content came from. And at first I thought like maybe it was her life rights and something something like that came up and everybody was able to get their hands on these stories. But there's only three real guesses on the internet as to why, you know, so much of this content has came to popularity now. And one was like, because she turned, she would have turned 60. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Um, the second one was because uh, people are falling back into this nostalgia of the like late 90s and early 2000s. And that one's a little more believable. But mm-hmm. I think the understand, understood consensus is that this publicity that's surrounding Meghan Markle and Prince Harry is very reminiscent of something that we've seen before. And so it's bringing all of this to light again. And we're getting another chance to. I guess, understand where we went wrong as a public. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, That makes a lot of sense because I feel like Meghan Markle is often compared to Princess Diana, if not like directly. I think the same lens is over her mm-hmm. as was over Princess Diana, mm-hmm. interestingly. So let's just do an overview of Spencer. <clears throat> Spencer is a North American mall retailer with 600 stores in the United States <laughs> and Canada. Their stores specialize in novelty and gag items. <laughs> He'd be pranking me. He'd be pranking me. I'm sorry. I had to. Uh. <laughs> I was not allowed to shop at Spencer. Oh, you weren't? What about no. Hot Topic? I was allowed to shop at Hot Topic that because they sold Twilight t-shirts. Oh, my God. And where else was I going to get my Twilight t-shirts? That's true. I think Spencer's, like, was allowed to sell dildos or something. And They like, sold, like, sex stuff. Yeah, that, I didn't. I wasn't allowed to go in there either. <laughs> I'm talking big <laughs> shit, but I wasn't. <laughs> you had to get your sister to take you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the plot of this movie is that we are following the then Princess of Wales, Diana, as she joins the royal family for a three-day Christmas celebration. Celebration was the only word I could find, but it's like the least celebratory. Yeah, there's three not... days I've ever witnessed. No, it's very somber. Yeah, it's it's a pretty dark film. And before we like jump too much into like the breakdown of it, I want to touch on the production of it because it's really interesting. Like I said, to handle something with such delicacy as as necessary of this particular biopic. Um, and that word also becomes touchy, as as we'll see. But mm. uh, this movie was directed by Chilean director Pablo Loran. And he formally directed No, which got like uh, generated some Academy buzz and then is most known for Jackie, the mm-hmm. 2016 biopic uh, following Jackie O, which was um, critically acclaimed and also got Natalie Portman a nomination for Best Actress. Did you have you seen Jackie? I haven't seen Jackie. Me neither. I I would like to see it after seeing this film. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. I think that the buzz around Jackie, the the movie production, was that it was incredibly difficult for Natalie Portman. And watching Spencer, I'm understanding that it must have been incredibly difficult for Kristen Stewart. So Jackie Onassis and Princess Diana have a lot of parallels in their lives. Like, I mean, Jackie O was basically like the is part of the royal dynasty. Mm-hmm. So she had a lot of love and adoration and people adored her in a similar way as they did Diana. And so I think that the director, Pablo Rain, is like so, I guess, uh, magnetized or drawn to these these psychological unravelings that must come with this insane amount of public pressure. And um, I'm sure that's what brought him to this film as well. Although Jackie was received critically very well, there have been historians who believe that it intentionally cast a negative light on Hmm. Jackie's relationships. Yeah, so like when biopics are like following these infamous people that are known for doing bad things, they often tend to try to humanize them. Mm -hmm. And I think when you take a from a different direction for someone who's beloved, I think there's often a lure to try to humanize them with negative, with, you know, with flaws and um, turmoil to kind of, I guess, make you feel better about, like, not being perfect. Yeah, like, they're not perfect either. Yeah. That's a really astute observation because I remember watching Bohemian Rhapsody, the, like, Queen or really Freddie Mercury biopic, Mm -hmm. and I loved it. But at the time, like, I I loved Queen, but I didn't really know anything about the actual history of the band or about Freddie Mercury himself. And a lot of people said that it kind of painted his story in like a really 
candy-coated light and they didn't talk about his queerness or AIDS really at all or or the reality of those things in his Mm -hmm. life. They kind of just like made everything very shiny. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely see your point drawn into that life story biopic as well. Yeah, like if you're at this point where you have the the material and the facts in front of you, you can either make it a happy story or a sad story. I mean, there's a pool as a storyteller to take it in a compelling direction, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we're on the subject of historical accuracy, this movie um, is kind of on the hot seat for what is and isn't true. They take a lot of things out of context mm-hmm. or for granted or just make up things completely. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the film, we see uh, this this line that says, a fable from a true tragedy. And um, Kristen Stewart and the director have gone on to say, like, this isn't a biopic. This is a complete dramatization. It's kind of mixed signals for the audience as to what we can actually believe to have been true. And in in this case, for the means of this episode, I'm going to almost attempt to watch the story and break it down for you as if she is just a person or just a princess and Mm -hmm. not Princess Diana. Because as we'll go through and I'll point them out, these inaccuracies are pretty glaring. I think it's important for us to remember that this is just a story about a person. Yeah. I I wonder if it was ever developed at any time as just like about a princess, like about an English monarch Mm -hmm. and not about Princess Diana. Because I mean... It was smart of them to do that because it put my butt in the seat to be like, oh, my God, Kristen Stewart plays Princess Diana. Like, f- there's no fucking way I'm not seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. But those people who do have a loyalty to her legacy and whatever truth they think is um, assigned to her, they're going to have a problem with any straying of that truth, especially in this telling, which is kind of dark. <laughs> yeah, you're, so you're really curious. playing with fire when you do some when you pick a person like this, because if you get it absolutely right, you're going to be accused of, or if you make it absolutely positive, you're going to get accused of sugarcoating things. And if you, you know, lie to make it seem like there's more tension and turmoil, you're going to get all the fans pretty much shitting on you. Right. Royal expert Stuart Pierce told Us News, I would say it's much more to do with the director's lens into what he believed to be the reality of a neurotic disposition within a woman who happened to just be Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. So that's what some of the the historians are saying, some of the royal experts. And then there's uh, another group of people who are saying this is exactly how she was in real life. Interesting. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see and, and we'll go through this movie and I'll point out those things. But for now, just imagine that this is just a movie about a princess. Just some random princess. Yeah. So um, Kristen Stewart is our lead. She plays Diana. And it said, it's said to have taken her about six months to perfect this accent that she has, which initially we watched the movie and it's like, seems very like on the edge of being gimmicky. But I think for, for as long as it takes her to get comfortable, like we get comfortable as well. Like mm-hmm. she slips into it very easily. Yeah. I just want to gag about Kristen Stewart for a while. Is now the right time or should I wait? Yeah, no, we we should gag about Kristen Stewart. I think that she did a stellar job, honestly. I cannot think of a better role. I was fucking floored. Okay, wait. Okay, wait. No, I take it back. Let's talk about this. Okay, later. Later. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Next point. (laughs) Okay, so like I said, this film takes place over three days, the the day Christmas Eve, Christmas, and then Boxing Day. Um, The film is set at the Queen's uh, San... Sandringham Estate in Norfolk. And um, so... It means nothing to me. I, it means nothing to me. <laughs> I don't know if you guys understand. It looks cold there. <laughs> this, play, this film takes place in a place that is cold. <laughs> and uh, we first see Diana driving herself uh, into a gas station. And she doesn't have the Royal Guard. She doesn't have a driver. She gets out and she enters a gas station in a nearby town to ask for directions. And everybody looks at her like... She's got like three heads, right? And this is when she says her first lines as Diana and us as an audience are getting to hear it for the first time. And it was a bit shaky. It was shaky. I was nervous. Yeah, I was And also nervous. she looks like a total dyke driving that car. She really does. I was like, oh, God. Well, Diana, like, I mean, was a little butchier, I think, in physicality than I recalled. But if we're talking physicality, her performance is perfect. Yeah, like spot fucking on. The way she walks where her hands drop behind her, like the way her head kind of is always up and looking. It's like 
just that alone, I was like, if she wasn't even wearing the outfits or the wig, if she was walking around like that, I could clock it. Yeah, it really was impressive the like care she obviously took to study her mannerisms because yeah, it's incredible the tilt of her head. Oh, yeah, everything. Was, Good job, Kristen. If you're listening to this, yeah. I'm sorry about the happiest season episode, but you did great in this one, sweetie. <laughs> you and Aubrey Plaza are the only reason we return to that season after season. Uh, um, so Diana was lost, but eventually makes it to this estate, and we understand that she's always late for everything, and that everybody in the royal family is kind of sick of her and treats her like a misbehaving child. So she walks in, and they have this like archaic scale out for her. This is a tradition that is actually true. Like, Really? I looked this up expecting it to not be a thing, but it's true. Like, They have you sit on a scale, and then they weigh you before and after your stay to determine if you've put on three pounds in a belief that shows that you've enjoyed yourself. That is so unbelievably toxic. I don't even know if it's worth talking about. It's so fucked up. It's toxic, and it's also like not an interesting tradition to have. Like, who was that for? I, I I honestly didn't believe it to be true because I'm like, right. this is a plot device. It plays so well, yeah, as a plot device. Uh-huh. I'm honestly floored to hear that it's real. No, this is something that the queen did. I hate that. I know, she sucks. If it looks like a plot device and it smells like a plot device, then it probably functions as a plot device. <laughs> and she runs to the bathroom and makes herself sick. I, I had like a cursory understanding that Princess Diana suffered with bulimia and probably anorexia as well, but I did not know this film was going to handle that as like a main theme. I didn't either. And I honestly was like kind of here for it. I was like, we never get to see stories. Like this is a part of her life that was incredibly buried, incredibly kept under wraps, but obviously affected her mentally, physically, emotionally. So I really enjoyed that they brought, uh, not enjoyed, but I was glad that they let that part of her life come into being because... I think it's really relatable and important that we talk about these kinds of stories instead of burying them. Yeah, especially when it's someone that is a literal princess, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, these are the people that are supposed to be so far above this type of of emotion. And, um, I mean, Kristen does a good job with these scenes. They're always very jarring. So she she makes herself sick, and then she um, gets to see William and Harry, and they're played by two great little... Um, actors, and they have just a great chemistry with Kristen. I mean, the theme of this movie is that, like, nobody wants to have a real conversation with Diana, and everybody basically runs if there's, if that's going to happen. So William and Harry are basically her lifelines, and one of, like, a few, maybe, like, four or so people that she can trust and have an actual conversation with. And at this point, we think that we're going to, like, see her interact with all these royal people and that doesn't really happen for quite a long time. Like she busies herself very quickly and the only people she really talks to are staff members for a while. And that's when we meet Maggie. She sees Maggie and is like immediately like overjoyed and um, they embrace and we understand that Maggie is her dresser, her royal dresser. And so a royal dresser is just responsible for getting you in and out of these outfits for all these occasions. And so uh, she tells Maggie she has a jacket in her car that she needs her to repair. So when Diana was coming home to this estate, she looks over these rolling hills and she realizes that her childhood home is much closer than she ever realized. And so she sees over the hills a scarecrow and the scarecrow is still wearing the jacket that they put on it when she was a child. It's a jacket of her father. So she tells Maggie, I have this jacket and I need you to do whatever you can to fix it. And I mean, if... If the way that she reacted to Maggie initially wasn't enough to tell us how much Maggie meant to her, the fact that she's entrusting her with something so delicate and so important and trusts her completely. Um, so that's very, that's very important. Um, oh, and Maggie's played by Sally Hawkins. Oh, Sally Hawkins. Who is so, so good. You'll recognize Sally Hawkins from the universal love story, The Shape of Water. <laughs> <laughs> Her face, she can portray any emotion at the drop of a hat. Insanely talented. So talented. She is she's so good in the shape of water. She I mean, they do these insane close-ups with this character in this film that are so it's like a fucking warm bowl of soup. Every time Maggie's on screen, I feel so comfortable 
and like happy and warm. And this film makes you feel none of those things very constantly. Yeah, like Maggie is a safe space. Mm -hmm. Maybe her only one, maybe with her children and then Maggie and that's about it. Yeah, so that's Maggie and she gets to be happy for about two seconds. And, you know, just as I'm beginning to talk about this, I realize how similar this is to Black Swan. Yeah, this is like White Swan. Yes, this is the White Swan where it's like, this perfect person, this person who's supposed to be perfect in every single way, is understandably being crumbled under this pressure. And when it's taken as a thriller or a horror, some people have remarked that this movie is a horror, but hmm. when it comes from a psychological place like that, you really understand how much this pressure could make you susceptible to all kinds of mania and hallucinations. Absolutely. So she, after seeing Maggie, she goes to her room, sets her stuff down. She finds a, a book on Anne Boleyn. And she begins to read it, flip through the pages and whatnot. We'll see that she gets enthralled with this book for the rest of the, the movie. It's just important that you know that it happens um, pretty quickly into her stay here. And that Anne Boleyn was a royal who was sent to execution because her husband, the king, was having an affair with another woman and wanted that woman to be queen. Yeah. So do, do you want to—I don't know that much about Anne Boleyn. Do you want to— I know she was— sentenced to die like her head was chopped off because her husband was like she was cheating on me but really he was cheating on her uh, i see yeah catholics don't believe in divorce so he had to right. sentence her to death in order to remarry yeah so foreshadowing also something about Anne Boleyn that i know is that she like historically is known for wearing that pearl necklace um as yeah. like a meaning of protest against the way that she was being treated and um, a pearl necklace is evident and, and very important in this film as yeah, well. totally. So she goes to a Christmas Eve dinner, and this is the first time that we see any royal, mm -hmm. uh, any royalty. And before it was kind of almost like they never wanted to cut to anybody's faces. They, they were all like these looming beings around the house. And so this is the first time that we see her sitting amongst them as a peer. Diana sits down and... They start to eat dinner and the food is being served and she finally looks up and she sees Charles. So he's one of the first royals that we see their actual face. So she's being overwhelmed with the serving of this like really rich food. And, you know, she's she's setting herself to the task of eating it. And it looks like it's a, an immensely difficult challenge for her. Yeah. And as she's like looking at this food, she can't bring herself to eat it. And she looks up and she sees the queen for the first time. And the severity in the queen's face almost shocks her. And she kind of looks away and she looks back to the queen and the queen is Anne Boleyn. And like she's starting to kind of lose it. And she's clutching at her neck. It's almost as if she's choking. And, and the necklace that's around her neck is this, this pearl necklace that was given to her by Charles. And it's also identical to another necklace that he gave to Camilla Bowles. She remarked previous that she didn't like this necklace. And she felt a lot of pressure to be wearing this necklace. And it's like in this moment of, of seeing Anne Boleyn and being shocked and being overwhelmed, the necklace is almost like a noose and it's strangling her. So she's pulling at her neck. She's like having a hard time breathing. Everybody seems like it's look. they're looking at her. She eventually pulls the, the necklace off her neck and the pearls snap into the bowl of soup in front of her. And she just begins to eat. See, this is the exact moment I knew that I was living for this movie. Mm -hmm. This scene fucking lit me up. Mm -hmm. It's so good. This scene is done so incredibly well. Like... She's eating this soup like ravenously, like she it like it tastes like the best thing she's ever ate. She's and swallowing eating the pearls she's, down. She's <sighs> biting the pearls like <sighs> and like just loving and just eating the soup and everybody's kind of staring at her. And then it just cuts to her in the bathroom being sick. And that was just a hallucination. Yeah. Ah. Ah. I love it. So you're seeing a lot of the like black swan yes. similarities here and they'll What's continue. What's real, what isn't. And also to kind of to sidetrack, so the swallowing of items is called Pike's disease, I believe. I watched a film recently called Swallow, um, which is an independent film that came out, I think, in 2019. But it's about a woman, a housewife, who's kind of dealing with the fact that she doesn't love her husband and he's abusive to her by swallowing little tiny trinkets. She starts really small with like marbles and then she gets to like a thumbtack and then she starts swallowing bigger and bigger things. And this is, a, this is an actual disease that I think is definitely associated with like control. You know, like I've heard interviews with people who've had it saying like it was a way to feel like they were in control. But 
obviously if you're swallowing like sharp things, you can't pass them and they're eventually going to cause problems in your digestion system. So I thought that was just an interesting, like you don't see that a lot. Yeah. Like that's not a common thread in films, but um, if anyone's ever seen Swallow, and I highly, highly recommend you watch it, it's really interesting because it's like her trying to take control and like her swallowing these pearls like empowers her in this yeah. really weird way that I think is so fascinating. If you're thinking about it in this control sense, and we've we've talked about eating disorders on this podcast, it's like the antithesis of that, right? Or like the the inverse or the foil of that is like to have control over what you're eating and what you're eating is also destructive. Mm-hmm. And what you're not eating and what and when you're purging, you know, is also a sense of control. Yeah. And this pearl necklace, I've I've looked this up and um there's no there's no record of this necklace having existed or the same one existing and Camilla Bowles was also wearing it. There's no record of that. But just like an interesting tidbit while we're on the subject of Camilla Parker Bowles, she was the mistress of Charles. That is accurate. She did go on to marry him in 2005. But instead of taking the title Princess of Wales, she chose the title Duchess of Cornwall, even though customarily her title would be the Princess of Wales. Was it because, I'm assuming because Diana died as the Princess of Wales, or did she lose that title when they got a divorce? They got a divorce, and I think, and Diana lost the the Duchess of Wales, but I think she was still allowed to be called Princess, Hmm. like Princess Diana. Interesting. Yeah, I think that was something that they agreed on. But um, yeah, she she just didn't want that title. Well, yeah, you type in like Princess of Wales. <laughs> Camila Bell's not going to come up, I assure you. Yeah. Uh, so this necklace is something that we see as a theme throughout the movie as being really constrictive or really constrictive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that works. <laughs> so... Um, in the night, that night after after this dinner, a traumatizing dinner, Diana, in like a mad rage or whatever, r- decides to run and try to make it to her old childhood home that's beyond these hills. And she's very quickly found out by the royal guard as they believed her to be an intruder and they realized it was Princess Diana. So they just took her home. And so we're seeing a lot of this, like she's a misbehaving child and she's kind of always being taken back to her parents and you know and this is one of those things where Charles becomes very upset with her for having done this and acts out against her in in other ways so yeah there's like a whole army of people there to just like make sure she does the most minute tasks like get out of the bathroom show up at dinner wear the right clothes right like she a, a big like contention with her among the royal families that she will like swap her outfits around like the outfit she's supposed to wear to church she wears to like dinner or whatever yeah. And it's like the one thing. And they're like, how dare you do that? They're <laughs> pissed at her and they're like, hire six more people to watch her. Not, yeah. not fuck up like that. It's just like, can you just let the woman live? Let her breathe. So so she's taken back home to her parents and she's got a slap on the wrist. And she comes to see William and Harry in their bed at night. And they have this really lovely, wonderful scene where Diana and William and Harry are kind of just going back and forth and and she's talking to them very sincerely and very earnestly in a lighthearted way about some very serious stuff. And um, this scene is a joy to watch. And also I found out that it was mostly improvised and they didn't receive a lot of directions as to what to say. And so that's why the bouncing around seems so natural because like they really take everything in stride. That's so lovely. They had so much chemistry in this scene and mm-hmm. for t- such young actors as well. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell everyone's really listening to what the other person is saying. Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Kristen Stewart does a great job as Diana. I mean, what people remember about her is is how generous, loving, caring, empathetic that she was. And she was all of that and more for her children. And mm. you can see that in photographs just with body language. And she really personifies that very well. Yeah. So the next day is Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's so much fun. It's so sad. It's so sad immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so we wake up this morning and Maggie is gone. Diana expects her to be the one to dress her and a new woman appears and says, I'm your new dresser. And um, it's very simple. I'll just put these clothes on you. And Diana has like a understandable freak out is if there's about one person you feel like you can talk to who will tell you the truth is gone and now you're in a sea of crazies 
so she has an emotional reaction to this. And while she feels like she is deserving of emotional outbursts, she very quickly checks herself and realizes, like, if I react to this, they're going to slap me on the wrist again and they're going to use this as proof that I'm unruly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, if you don't bring Maggie, I'm going to rip my dresses apart with a kitchen knife. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, wait, don't say that. Um, say I, I would I would really like to have Maggie. Mm-hmm. I, I really like that scene. It, it was it really hammered home, like, that thematic po- plot point to me is that, like, even if she's showing up late, she's still playing the game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She's not totally rebelling against them, not yet at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They attend, they attend a, a church service. The royal family attends a church service. And outside, while they're being mobbed by paparazzi, she sees Camilla wearing the same necklace. I thought this was a little, like, much. But I understand why they did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like I said, that didn't happen. But plot devices, am I right? Plot devices. It smells like plot devices. <laughs> <laughs> so they get back to the estate, and Diana and Charles have a full conversation for about the first time in this film. And I actually really enjoy this scene from uh, like a viewer standpoint. Cinematography in this scene is is handled so well and the tension is so heightened. And they're basically fighting over whether or not the boys should be hunting pheasants on Boxing Day. And as this is happening, they're loading guns and shooting them outside. So they're in this very beautiful library having this very terse conversation and these guns are going off and it's it's all kind of coming as a shock to Diana who seems incredibly delicate at this point. And they're like on opposite ends of this billiards table. Mm-hmm. And I kind of expected her to just like pick up one of the heavy pool balls and just like fucking chuck it at his head at some point. Mm-hmm. I like willed it to happen. And I'm not going to tell you if it did or didn't happen, listener. You're just going to have to watch the movie. I definitely wanted her to hit him with something. And 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 in this conversation he tells her you need to become better at separating yourself. You know, there are two of us, the ones that we are and the ones they take pictures of. Those are the words that he uses. I definitely feel like that is a theme in the actual Princess Diana's life that I could believe happened. That she had to be, like, coached into, like, oh, well, by the way, you have to, like, disassociate while you're doing most of your life in order to remain, like, a sentient, capable person mm-hmm. because the idea that like of this much exposure and this much show boating would essentially drive you to the brink, mm-hmm. which I'm sure as an I think she was like 19 or 20 when they got married. Like I'm sure a teenager wasn't prepared to do that mm-hmm. and give up her life in such a way. So after this discussion with Charles, she's pretty bummed and she's, she's sitting outside and staring at this bird and kind of asso- disassociating and she's approached by Gregory, who is the queen's right hand in this instance, in this estate. And his job is to be super fucking annoying. And every time he shows up on screen, you roll your eyes. But um, he's played by Timothy Spall, who, if you've seen Harry Potter, plays the role of Peter Pettigrew. So <sighs> so we're not meant to like him. We can't you like can't, him. <laughs> you physically cannot like I, Wow, I didn't even notice that. But I was yeah. like, fuck this guy. As an audience member, there's n- there's <sighs> no way in hell that you could ever sympathize with this character. And they make him, like, they vilify the shit out of him. Um, really? I, I thought this scene was supposed to humanize him, and I, it didn't work on me. Yeah. Well, he and in this scene, he sits down and is basically unprompted, unsolicited, just barrages Diana with this, like, terribly traumatic war story. And... She says absolutely nothing, and he goes on to say some patriotic bullshit about, like, well, I would have happily died for the crown or whatever. And she's like, she turns to him and she says, I don't I don't want anyone to die for me. Mm. So he is basically like, time to get your clothes on, don't want to be late for dinner. And she just clocks him and is like, did you put the Amberlynn book in my room? And he says, I don't know what you're talking about, and gets up and leaves. And, you know, this Amberlynn imagery keeps following her around. and She's reading this book. She's pretty much devouring it. So it's, it's hard to understand what the motive is of, of why you would want her to, to read about Amberlynn. Do you want her to feel justified in martyrdom or do you want her to feel as though if she doesn't conform, she'll be murdered? I feel it's like she feels like her 
fate is sealed just like Anne Boleyn's was. Like there was nothing Anne Boleyn could have done to change her fate. And I think that she feels powerless and that nothing she does can change the decisions that are already made for her. Like her fucking outfits are picked out for every meal of every day. You know, like she has no control. That's how I interpret how she's relating to Anne Boleyn. I agree that's how she's relating to Anne Boleyn. But my, I'm wondering what would your motive as a person who put this in her room what would you want her to take away? Oh, from the like story? why would he put the book in there? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. She perceives it as a warning. Like, hey, if you don't act right, you're going to get your shit messed up by the royal family. Like, don't mess with the royal family. It would be a shame Truth. if you got your head cut off. <laughs> <laughs> but it also recognizes that everyone is aware that there's an affair going on between Charles and Camilla. Yeah. Everybody was super, super aware of this. I mean, she talks about it with, like, one of the maids at a certain point. She's, like, showing them the necklace, right? And is like, mm-hmm. oh, he gave a necklace just like this to her. And the maid's like, um, excuse me, can I grab this glass? <laughs> Are you done with that cup? <laughs> uh, yeah, so after this exchange with... Um, Peter Pettigrew, she goes back to the kitchen. (laughs) Um, Basically, just it almost seems like she's just trying to connect with someone. She's talking to the head cook, and she eventually just asks for wire cutters. And fetch the wire cutters. Fetch the wire cutters. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, work, get this bitch some wire cutters. And he's like, why do you need wire cutters, Diana? Yeah, I, I. She says to cut wire. I'm like, oh yeah. Why do you need wire cutters work. to cut wire? I thought immediately that she was going to set the pheasants free. That's what in I some sort too. of childish act. But she actually goes back to her room and she, she cuts her arm. Yeah. She puts the wire cutters up to the inside of her bicep and she cuts it while she's wearing this like amazing gown. It's like mm-hmm. her dinner gown or whatever. Yeah. So oh, so what a moment. Like. At the end of Christmas, everybody's trying like crazy to get Diana. Like Peter Pettigrew was trying to get her to dinner. Her dressers are trying to get her in this lovely dress. And she won't have any of it. And eventually she kind of throws a tantrum and takes these wire cutters and just cuts into her arm. It's really hard to watch. And um, she, in like a place that's like unmistakable. Yeah. In, in a place that like I think you understand that. I'm I'm a val- I'm valued like a collectible like and if I'm not in pristine condition then what am I good for? Mm-hmm. And so taking the cutters to her arm was I think very calculated. Yeah. And so she spends like the rest of the night in this like bathroom and her dressers are wrapping at the door saying like you're so late for dinner maybe you can make desserts and she's she's just calling for Maggie she just wants Maggie she's like laying over this toilet because she keeps making herself sick and um. She hears Maggie at the door and she jumps up excitedly and and opens the door and and Maggie kind of embraces her and they're holding hands and she's like, just promise me that like, you'll you'll never leave me, that you'll always be here for me. And Maggie's like, yes, yes. And then in a moment, we realize it's not Maggie. It's one of the maids and she's just hallucinating Mm -hmm. in desperation and just wanted it so badly to be Maggie, wanted to open the door and have it be Maggie. And it was really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like, gosh, she's really alone, mm-hmm. truly. And she's hallucinating like very Black Swan. It is I'm so like, oh, Black no. Swan. So, I think it's the moment she realizes she's like, oh, shit, like I'm losing it. Yeah, and any time that she's kind of really being corralled into doing something, she really acts out in a way that I think this film kind of enforces this idea that she was a, a dramatic person mm-hmm. in a way that I'm not super a fan of. But after this, realizing Maggie isn't back, she grabs the wire cutters and she goes and tries to enter her family home again, her childhood home. Also another little tidbit, this family home would have been a hospital for the disabled at this point in time historically. Hmm. Um, so just another inaccuracy. But um, she breaks into this house and she's having these hallucinations of her childhood and being so happy mixed with like the ghost of Anne Boleyn kind of stalking her around this home comes to a head when she's at the top of the stairs and she very seriously considers throwing herself off and killing herself. But the ghost of Anne stops her. And in that moment, she pulls the necklace from her neck again and all the pearls roll down the stairs. Mm. 
upon first viewing, I was like, okay, this is a little on the nose, but I watched it again for this and I was like, I really like, I like the storybook quality of it. You're like flashing in between like child Diana, teenager Diana and current Diana, like in all these different outfits, like laughing in childhood and then the ghost of Anne Boleyn. It was very like, um... That short story, The Yellow Wallpaper, yes, about that woman who's kept, like, in a room because her husband, like, thinks she's gone hysterical. And, like, at the time, I think this was, like, the early 1900s, like, you would just put a woman in a room and give her a bunch of drugs and be like, hey, you just need to be on bed rest and not talk to anyone. That'll make you feel better. Mm-hmm. And she starts, like, seeing things in the yellow wallpaper around the room. Yeah, it was very much yeah. like that. And But then she has this great moment where she breaks the necklace and you kind of get a sense of like, she's going to fuck some shit up from here on out. Like she's she's done. Yeah, this is the moment that truly emboldened her. Mm-hmm. I just think it's the moment she, like she chooses to not be Anne Boleyn. Yeah. She chooses to like take a little bit of control to break that chain to let the pearls, which are supposed to represent, like, her husband's obligatory affection towards her and let them fall down yeah. the stairs. It's a really great shot, by the way. Like, I can see the shot of, like, all the pearls, like, bouncing from step to step to step down this staircase. And it's just, like, she's done. Like, it's a – feels like an end beat, like a period. Yeah, it really – like, it really does almost feel like a punctuation where yeah. it's, like, this moment is emboldening her. And instead of saying, I'm going to take my life – it almost seems like she says, like, I'm going to have a new life. Mm-hmm. So this is so she leaves and, you know, next day is Boxing Day. She's laying in bed or her hand is at the end of the Amberlynn book and she's finished it. And um, she's awakened by Maggie. Maggie. Maggie, Sally Hawkins. Incredible. And so um, she says, like, are you the real Maggie? <laughs> and she's like, yes, it's me. I'm really here. They Aww. called me back from London. They're laying in bed. It's very pillow talky. It's, mm-hmm. like, very sweet. I, I really love it. They take a drive in Diana's car to the nearby beach, and I'm going to show you a scene now. Oh, yay. You said that you told someone that um, you thought I was cracking up. It's okay. But did you say it? Before I answer that question, ma'am, for what it's worth, I've never told you this. It probably means you have to fire me, but, um... Well, actually, I'm in love with you. Yes, I mean, I mean, I mean in, in that way. Completely. So, I suppose the one word I'd use to describe you would be shocked. <coughs> Diana's a shock. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> right. so what do you say to that? Uh, Shocked as wonders, apparently. <laughs> and I know, I know you don't see me in that way. It's perfectly I... fine. I'm grown up. <laughs> I just thought I'd lighten the gloom with something totally unexpected. Bam. Oh. Just, uh, just think of all the times I've seen. <laughs> I'm surprised, but mm-hmm. completely grown up about this. Uh, be- no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You're having a childish giggle, and I love it. Fuck doctors. What you need is love. Love, shocks, and laughter. I'm not crying. You're crying. Oh, Lizzie, you want to tell us about that scene? <sighs> it's the most beautiful scene in the whole film, for sure. But maybe in my whole life. But Sally Field... Sally Hawkins, <clears throat> dude. S- Sally Hawkins. <laughs> if you make these people think that Sally Fields is Sally on this Field. fucking beach. <laughs> So Maggie and Diana are sitting among the dunes of this beautiful beach and the sun's coming down on them. And Diana asks Maggie, you know, have you said this shit about me? Like my one true friend. And Maggie is like, LOL, I'm in love with you. 
like like that. And it's fine. You don't have to love me back, but just know that I love you and you need more of that in your life. More love. Fuck doctors. You need love. Oh, yeah. There, it's so nice. There was a rumor that was being spread around by Charles. It's an impl- it's implied that Maggie had been saying to other people that Diana was losing it, like cracking up. Right. So that's what she's referencing. Like, oh, oh I've heard that you told them I'm cracking up. Yeah, and Diane, like, asked other people about it. Like, didn't Maggie say this thing about me? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of implied that, like, well, many people have said this thing about you. I think it's sweet that Maggie doesn't even dignify it. Yeah. You know? She's like, that's not important. She's like, not only would I not talk shit, I actually love you. It's, they have so much chemistry. Yeah, Kristen Stewart has has said that she had a crush on Sally Hawkins. Uh, Who doesn't? During this. And um, oh I God. have a such a crush on Sally Hawkins Me she's too. she's stunning but also she has this like how am I trying to say this so she she has this like physicality where if it's almost as if you see any thought yeah go across her mind you can know exactly what it is and in the smallest of movements and she's such a tiny person mm-hmm. she like she actively listens to Diana in a way that like is different than others she's not searching for you know, currency through rumors or speculation. She's not looking for a flaw or anticipating her to say something stupid or rude. She's just like doting on her in a way that's really lovely. I think that, you know, this scene is fun to watch because it's it's like talking to your best friend and, and you're having a laugh. And Diana says at one point, like, I'm a very grown up about this. And I think that's in reference to her work with um, like gay people, gay rights and the AIDS movement. Um, not the AIDS movement, but the the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, yeah. Like whenever Sally tells her, or whenever Maggie tells her this news, it almost like brings Diana like leans closer and like pulls mm-hmm. her closer. Whereas I think when you see this kind of scene play out historically and in cinema, it's like that person gets kind of repelled and like kind of pushes away. Is like, oh well, I owe you this thing, or like, oh, imagine all the times you've probably been obsessed with me. But this like definitely like solidifies their friendship. Yeah. Of like, I actually love you and I'm not asking anything of you. Like, you don't owe me anything, but I just want you to know, like, I'm giving you love free of charge. She's obviously felt compelled by her love for Diana, but I think as an individual has realized that it's of no worth and of no consequence and could never happen. So why burden her with the knowledge? But in this moment, she gets to give it to her like a little gift. Yeah. You know, and she does. It's not a sad moment. Like, no. I. I'd love the movie where they have, like, some sort of unrequited, not unrequited, but they have some sort of, like, secret lesbian love affair. But, alas, did this really happen? I'm so sorry, Lizzie, but this person doesn't exist. (laughs) I know. I can't have anything! The historical accuracy left the stupid, like, weighing (sighs) chair and, like, stupid weigh scales (laughs) and we can't have Maggie, but... Uh, Motherfucker. Yeah, I, I was reading about it. This this Maggie person doesn't exist. But they're saying like that she's derived of an idea that people do get awfully friendly with their handlers. Which is like, okay. Ooh, not helpful. Finally. I'm right? just going to ignore that you told me that. <laughs> Believe in my mind that Maggie loved Diana. Yeah. Sitting in a tree. And, and that they were in love. But um, no, in our minds, they, they both exist just the way that we like them mm-hmm. and they're in love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, after this scene, they just have like a wild romp and they're just running and it being kids almost. And, you know, this scene gives us this little breath for the first time watching this movie. Like there is positive, there's positivity. There are people that love Diana for the right reasons. And there are people that are going to be tender with her and not people that are going to try to boss her around all the time. Mm-hmm. So this... This scene, truly, as an audience member, I I took a a deep breath and felt really good for the first time. Yeah, there was hope on the horizon for Diana. But before the film ends, she has to do some more dramatic. More dramatic shit. (laughs) Yeah, so she she has Maggie kind of drop her off uh, near the scarecrow. And um, she tells Maggie, just like, bring my car back to the estate and leave the keys in the glove compartment. She gets out of the car and we see her walking into the forest and she emerges on the other end and we hear the gunshots of the pheasant hunt. 
So the pheasant hunt is taking place. Both of the boys have their shotguns and they're scaring all these pheasants out of the woods into this clearing so that they can be shot. Mm-hmm. And Diana comes out with her arms up and she demands William and Harry. She, she is demanding to take them away and she's taking them away right now. And Charles lowers his gun and looks over to the queen and just says, go, you can go. I didn't expect him to say that. I didn't either. And he said it with a level of affection, maybe not affection, but like, not like out of exasperation, like, oh, we can't reason with her, but like a, like a gift to Diana. It's like, all right, Diana, you can have this one. Yeah. Like, this is for you. I know you need this. Yeah. Did you get that sense when you watched it? I think it was more of like a, like, what can I do? She's standing in front of my gun, like literally with her hands up, like. If you're at the point where you're you're this far gone and this is how you have to make demands, like, just let her have the fucking yeah, thing. It's not that big of a fucking deal. Christmas is over. Christmas is over. <laughs> so they they go, um, they leave the she leaves with the boys in the car, and and as she's trying to start the car, she opens the glove compartment for her keys, and it's a note from Maggie that says, "I'm not the only one who loves you." I love this movie. <laughs> and they go speeding away in their little convertible and they're singing songs and the kids are hungry and they stop at a KFC. Yes. <laughs> and the KFC goes, name for the order, which no one's ever given a fucking name. At KFC. <laughs> yeah, right. Not my KFC. <laughs> and she goes, Spencer. Uh, and she like drives away. And Spencer is the, the name of her father. Woo. Bravo. Yeah, this movie, God, it was like an exercise in something. I don't know what, but I, it felt like a full-time job. Like, <laughs> You did a great job because for like watching this in theater a week ago, yeah, kind of drunk. <laughs> it was really hard to kind of put the pieces back together. So let's talk about how this film was received. It's let's. currently in theaters and it's doing remarkably well. Uh, it opened at the Venice Film Festival where it received a three-minute standing ovation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So people believe that this is Kristen Stewart's first chance at an Oscar. This will be, people believe this will be her first nomination. Oh, if she doesn't get nominated, I'll be fucking pissed. If If, she doesn't win. If Sally Hawkins doesn't get supporting actress. Let's go. Didn't she win for Shape of Water? I think she did. I'm pretty sure she did. Is it worth Googling? I don't remember giving her giving a speech. Maybe a nom. Maybe she did. Wait, didn't she win for Blue Jasmine? No. Is everyone in Blue Jasmine? No, that it's... That was Kate. Kate? Kate won? Cake, Cake Blanket? Blanket? Cake Blanket. Cake <laughs> Blanket. <laughs> she was nominated for Shape of Water. She did not win. And she was also nominated for Blue Jasmine and also didn't win. Always the Sally Fields, never the Sally Hawkins. (laughs) This is the year that Sally... I'm calling it. We're... We're doing this in what? December 2021? Yes. Come next month, Sally Hawkins and Kristen Stewart will have fucking Oscars for their performances in Spencer. I I agree. If Sally Hawkins doesn't get it this year, then who does she have to pop her pussy for? I know. If it wasn't Shape of Water, it's got to be this. And I mean, Kristen on. Stewart. Okay, can I gag over Kristen Stewart yet? We can. It's it's our time to unpack and to gag. How did you feel about the performance? I think it was the best performance that Kristen Stewart has ever given. This is, and we've said this, this is the least Kristen Stewart we've ever seen her. Yes, <laughs> which I don't hold against her. I love the bitch. She's not the best actor. I am wrong, though. She's a great actress. <laughs> she did phenomenally. She disappeared into Diana. She did. And the wig had a lot to do with it. So whoever mm-hmm. does, styled that wig, like, Diana's hair is so iconic, and they fucking nailed it. Yeah, they did incre- I mean, I'm imagining that this is going to nom all over the place. But, oh, yeah. But, like, makeup and... Cinematography. Yeah. Score. Mm-hmm. Editing. The yeah. editing was fucking amazing. The editing was really good. And the sound design. And Sally Hawkins. And Sally motherfucking Hawkins. Sadie Fields. <laughs> Sally Fields. They're the Sadie same person. Sandy Fields. Um, yeah, this I, I have I have a few qualms with the method of storytelling, but as if we're talking performance wise, it it 
hasn't gotten better for me this season. This is one of this is like the best performances I've I've seen this year. And you saw House of Gucci. And I saw House of Gucci, bitch. And a Patricia Gucci. <laughs> She's got a nom too. But can they get unnommed for those <laughs> accents? It was oh God. I, wait, well, a that's, negative nom. That's for a different episode. But um did, everybody did a, a really good job. I think my only qualm is that this is the way I felt right out of the theater, and it's kind of left a, a different taste in my mouth now that, you know, a couple of days have gone by. But it seemed almost intentionally inaccurate in a way that almost always leaned into a look that was not good for Diana. Hmm. They had her throwing lots of temper tantrums. They had her being completely difficult to handle, bad at following directions. It almost looked like she was happier to be angsty than she was to just spend time with her children. Because they dangle her children in front of her like collateral. And if she just behaves, then she can spend time with them. Much like Carol. Much like Carol. But the thing is, in this in this movie, they show a lot of her acting out. And they don't show a lot of them trying to control her. Which I think we needed more of. Like, we needed more of a reason for her to act out. Because, I mean, unless you're like a super stan and you don't know what these days of her life are meaning in the in the grand story of her, like, we didn't realize it was all reaching ahead. We didn't realize she was about to announce her divorce. Like, we didn't realize that these three days would be so instrumental in that decision making. All we know is like, it's Christmas, you're coming here, and it's the fucking queen. They're like, how have you, can you put on the skirt? And she like, loses her mind. Right. I definitely see what you're saying. Like... If you know the context of where this is on the Diana timeline, you would know that she's already at the end of her rope. But in this movie, right, like the things that they're asking her to do when you write them down on paper are not much. Mm -hmm. But watching it as someone who's watched a lot of Diana content and knows a good bit about her life, I could definitely feel that like she can't not a single piece of food not a single thing she puts on her body not a single moment of her time is undecided for her and for her children like at one point um william says or like harry asks william like while they're playing this game like sir are you going to play are you excited to be king and william goes i have no choice so i i can feel the tension as like a Princess Diana stan. But I feel like if they had just like removed the context of Princess Diana's life from the story, they could have gone a lot more places with it. You know what I mean? Not held back. They simultaneously wanted you, like they they wanted the advantage of you having a personal connection to this mm -hmm. story and already feeling a love for this character. They wanted all of that but then they didn't want to stay true to the historical accuracy. They wanted to fabricate a whole bunch of weird shit to kind of further this narrative that was only really important for this story. Like, mm -hmm. I don't I don't know if I believe this was the Diana that was oot and a boot. Like, no, I doubt it. Yeah. It Maybe seems like pieces this is of it, but... a different Diana universe. Yeah, I agree. I mean... She could have been a lesbian, for God's sakes. <laughs> I do appreciate they threw that in there. Yeah, I think they did. Uh, I I'll think take they, it. Yeah, I loved it. You know, I did, I'll take it. It's it's fantastic. It. Uh, so on a scale of one to ten, how would you rate this film? Girl, I'd give it a nine. I really would. I love it. Yeah, I think I'll give it an eight. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm. I'm trying to view it more as it's less about Diana mm -hmm. and the idea of I, Diana just colors kind of right. where we are with the film. But which they could have done because I'm remembering now the favorite is not based on a on a real royal, right? Yeah, so it's they just could like have went that royal. route. Mm -hmm. Like we know, we know the rules of a famous royal by now. But anyway, whatever they did, what they did, and I, I'm glad it's Princess Diana. Yeah, we've seen enough Disney movies. You could be like princess is sad and we'd be like yeah yeah she's sad <laughs> um on a scale of one to ten how gay is it not gay enough but gayer than i thought it would be that's not a number how gay do you think it is no that's cheating no i can't go first yes you can a five <laughs> It's like the price is right. Like you're upset <laughs> with whatever I'm gonna $1. say. One dollar. I remember watching the Price is Right as a kid and being like, "Why the fuck would anyone guess one dollar?" Four point nine 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 nine. 
<laughs> um, I'm going to say, since it was gay, but that person didn't exist, I'm going to say, also five. <laughs> yes, I got it right. It was a test and you passed. Divided by, oh, it's not looking good. Overall oh. score of 6.75. Because it wasn't gay enough. It wasn't gay Look, enough. if it hadn't been gayer, it would have a higher number. We can't all be Carol. We can't all be a fucking 10. <laughs> okay, cool. Any final thoughts about Sadie Fields? <sighs> Kristen Stewart, I'm so excited for her. I'm so excited to see what she does next. I am so pumped that she's actually a good actress. Kristen Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> pleasantly surprised. I love I love living in the universe as Kristen Stewart because just when you think the movie isn't going to be gay, it you is. Know, that's so funny. <laughs> I left the theater being like, like I saw for weeks. I was like, oh my God, she's playing Princess Diana. And in the back of my head, it was like, why is she playing Princess Diana? It's like the straightest woman on earth. <laughs> and now I know why. And I'm cool with it. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Subtextual is hosted by Lizzie Guitro and Samantha De La Fuente. Produced and engineered by Lee Garcia. Edited by Lizzie. Music by DJ No. Join us next week. We'll be discussing a weird one, folks, with manic comedy Swiss Army Man.